Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 180. It's really hard to believe that we produced 180 episodes. I know I keep talking about it. Uh, Actually, as I remind people, though, after this one, it's actually going to be 181 because the original prologue episode was never numbered. There's a whole story about that. Maybe we'll tell that at some point. We're in the home stretch of finishing up the Garrison Investigation Series, and there are a few more things to cover, as I've been mentioning in the last couple of episodes. Today's topic is one that I promised to cover before we got out of this area. It's the story of the Homa Bunker Raid. But before we get started on the episode itself, I was struck this week by a request that I received via email from a listener. It was a very thoughtful request that's very much in line with my own thinking, and I suspect probably the thinking of many of you as well. I'll read a portion of the email here, although for the sake of privacy, I won't name the listener. So it goes like this. Jeff, you yourself recently commented that trawling through the garrison case is a bit of a slog. I've always had a bit of trouble with it myself, as I mostly struggle to see its real relevance. Or maybe rather what the gist of it is. Jim Garrison, for sure, had the right idea and his heart in the right place even if he might not quite have gone by the book about it. And the fact that the CIA had an internal team advising the defense and infiltrating Garrison's camp shows how potentially damaging Garrison's efforts were, certainly casting suspicion on the CIA. But even so, nothing seems to add up in the case. It's never really clear to me what kind of a conspiracy setup Garrison was alleging. Who were the planners? Who were the shooters or shooter? How do they tie together? What was Shaw's role supposed to have been? Is Ruby thought to have been involved? If the, quote, conspiracy party is central to Garrison's thrust, then surely the fact that Lee Harvey Oswald, as well as David Ferry and Clay Shaw were allegedly present, then this seems to indicate that Lee Harvey Oswald was a central player. I don't necessarily have a problem with that, Do you believe that this party occurred? Anyway, that's not my real point, except to highlight my own, and I'm sure most listeners, confusion on the topic, emphasized. I don't think anyone listening can really figure out what the point of the whole case is, except to cast some suspicion on Shaw. So, my plea to you, Jeff, is this. If it's not too out of character for you, could you possibly, when you get to the end of the road on it, Wrap it up with a kind of clear conclusion, a takeaway on the whole thing. Emphasis added. What should we think on the Garrison case? Does it feel like Garrison was pulling on some real threads? What's the conspiracy he saw? What were the linchpins that sunk the ship? And what have we learned since then? Was there something? (laughs) My gosh, what an action-packed email. The confusing thoughts swirling around in my head suddenly became more clear. This listener helped to pull me out of the weeds and get me back in my car and get on my way to the Golden Gate. 
Remember the Golden Gate reference from the very early beginnings of this podcast? That's Jeff speak for the end of the podcast. The final episodes. Well, we're a long ways away from that now. I don't want to imply that we're coming to the end. But in the end, that is the goal. And right now, we are really just trying to finish up the Garrison series. So in the very last episode of the Garrison series, coming up pretty soon, we are going to do just that. We are going to take a shot at addressing what this listener so eloquently summarized in the email. I'm not sure I have a great answer for all the questions, but they are most certainly spot on when it comes to asking the right questions and staying on the trail of the assassins. Okay, I'll pause there for a second. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, but the summer has gone quickly, too quickly, and all the things on my to-do list are not scratched off. (laughs) But seemingly, all the time to do them is run through the hourglass. Even though at first blush that seems a little discouraging to me, still I'm going to stay at it, and I'm going to keep giving my best, whatever that may be in the moment. I'm going to keep doing my best to get the things done on that list, both work and, and leisure. You've heard me make that statement many times on this podcast. The idea of just staying at it when things get tough. It's one of the hardest things to do in life, I think. It's one of those things that you you hope your kids and other people you love or care for figure out. You know how important it is to their personal success and, and happiness. It's one of the things that you hope you yourself can maintain the will around to as close to the end as is possible as you make your way through the slog of life. (laughs) Okay, that was a bit philosophical, and I'm not trying to be depressing, but it is how I feel today on this Saturday morning at the lake. You know, being in my 60s, I'm really blessed. I I still have a great deal of energy and, and will to make things happen. I still have the wanderlust that I was born with, those wonderful, elemental things that have not yet left the building. I'm so grateful for that. Of course, there will be a day when they do, and I know that. So I know it's my job now, still, to make every minute count in every way possible. You won't regret that approach to life, I promise. Another thing I often say is, what are you going to do with what's left, with your time, with your money, with your will to engage, and otherwise. It's just as relevant to ask that question when you're young as when you are old, perhaps even more so. Being deliberate about it, because there really are seasons of life. You can't really understand that until you've been through a few. Asking that simple but powerful question, well, it will help you to shape the course of the rest of your life. I promise. And do remember, as Shakespeare said, that all of our yesterdays have lighted sorrows. You see, there is no avoiding that. No matter how unconscious or conscious you go through life, but being out there and engaging in life, well, it is better to have sorrows than nothing at all especially when they are derived from love and good intent. (laughs) Love, of course, though, 
has its own form of sorrows. And I'll leave that one for another day. I don't do many personal wanders anymore on this podcast. There is a mixed set of feelings about them in the listening audience. Some of you connect with me and these wanders implicitly, and others, well, not so much, or in some cases, not at all. For those in the latter category, it's just an annoyance that requires an unknown number of 15 or 30 second fast forward steps. The more times you have to do it, the more aggravated you get. I get it. And yes, it is my podcast, so I get to make the decisions on how often this occurs and in what form. But I truly believe that each of you is on the wander with me, and that makes a difference in how I see it. Well, enough of that wander. Let's get back to Homa. Homa is a great example of the very essence of the questions that the listener was asking about related to this whole garrison investigation. Okay, it's interesting, but how does it fit in to the assassination? Well, again, Homa is one of the many prominent examples of a story, of an event, that on its surface has some sinister connection to one of the four corners of a possible assassination conspiracy. In this case, a story of CIA involvement, Cubans who were working for the CIA in New Orleans, ammo that was potentially sent to anti-Castro forces, for use in the overthrow of Castro's government, perhaps even designated for a diversionary aspect of the Bay of Pigs operation. David Ferry's involvement, Guy Bannister's involvement, as they apparently used his 544 Camp Street address to store some of the arms. The fact that some of the arms perhaps made their way out to the Cuban training camps at Lake Pontchartrain, just north of New Orleans. Then again, the tie back to David Ferry because he ostensibly was engaged in training at these camps. The involvement, or at least the alleged involvement, of Sergio Arcacha Smith in the raids. You see, it's a big ball of twine, all pointing to these possible groups who individually or collectively may have had something to do with the assassination, or not. But not a bit of the actual story of Homa having anything to do with the assassination or the assassination plotting itself. Simply background information that strengthens the argument that many of these folks operated in the same circles, performed covert or clandestine operations together, and did so for the CIA, or in conjunction with the CIA. No doubt that is one more piece of corroborating evidence when trying to tie one or more persons to one or more other persons. So the point is here is that the Homa story is important if you put it in context. But you must understand the hierarchy of evidence and you must understand where this falls in that hierarchy of evidence. And you must also understand that it does not prove anything related to the assassination conspiracy. Rather, it strengthens the argument and, quite frankly, the available and very credible evidence that these individuals all knew each other and participated in these kinds of acts and did it on behalf of the CIA and other organized entities. That is an important fact worth noting, even though it doesn't point directly to anything related to the assassination. 
And that, my friends, is why the story of the Garrison investigation was and is still so confusing to this day to so many. So, with all of that in the background, and without further ado, let's listen to episode 180 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Bill Kelly is an independent researcher, the founder of the Committee for an Open Archive, and a co-founder of the Coalition on Political Assassinations. Over the years, Mr. Kelly has been a major contributor to advancing our knowledge of the Kennedy assassination and, in recent years, worked hard to obtain release of the Air Force One cockpit tapes that were related to the November 22nd trip back to Washington from Dallas after the assassination occurred. He is a frequent contributor to the Education Forum, and a while back he posted on that JFK Forum an excellent summation of the Homa Bunker Raid. So, let's start with that. I'll read it to you. So here goes. The Homa, Louisiana Bunker Raid of the Schlumberger Wells Company Munitions and Arms Cache, which took place in the late summer of 1961, included participants who later became entwined in the New Orleans aspects of the assassination of President Kennedy. The owner of the Schlumberger Company, I'll stop here, I think he was actually president and chairman of the board, Jean DiMenil was also a close associate of those in the Texas white Russian community who assisted the accused assassin Lee Harvey Oswald when he returned from the Soviet Union with his Russian wife and child. There are a number of covert operations that are related to what happened at Dealey Plaza, but the Homa Bunker Raid is one of the best documented and worthy of further study on a number of levels. The exact date of the raid has never been established, and it has been published as being in July, August, and September 1961, with Garrison's grand jury investigation saying it occurred, and I quote, on or around August 22, 1961 some four months after the Bay of Pigs. The munitions and arms taken in the raid were originally said to be destined for the Bay of Pigs or to be used in the OAS revolt of the French generals against Charles de Gaulle. When they weren't used in either event, they were taken to the New Orleans offices of Guy Bannister at 544 Camp Street, which was used by Lee Harvey Oswald in his Fair Play for Cuba Committee activities in the summer of 1963. And they were also taken to the Lake Poncha train, anti-Castro, Cuban training camp owned by William McClaney, which was raided by the FBI in July 1963. There has been the question as to whether some of these arms and ammunition were part of the Venezuelan arms cache, a Northwoods operation, or used in the attack on General Walker, the assassination of the president, or the murder of Dallas policeman J.D. Tippett, since the source of the ammunition in those incidents was never determined. 
The home of Bunker Raid has been the subject of a New Orleans grand jury and a libel case brought on by Gordon Novell and is frequently mentioned in JFK assassination books and articles, including Jim Garrison's Playboy interview and is featured in Oliver Stone's film JFK. The participants in the raid included David Ferry, Sergio Aracha-Smith, Rancière Blaise Ellinger, Carlos Caroga, Leighton Martins, Luis Nabal Nunez, Gordon Novell, Novell's wife Marlene Mancuso, and Andrew Blackman, an ex-Marine who carried around a bolt-action rifle that he frequently cocked and dry-fired for fun. Leaving from and returning to David Ferry's apartment at night, they traveled in two vehicles, Gordon Novell's 1959 Lincoln, which he drove, and a laundry truck, which Leighton Martins reportedly drove. Louis Rebel Nunez owned the laundry truck used in the raid that was also used by the Catholic Church to assist Cuban refugees and resembles a truck said to be seen at Dealey Plaza at the time of the assassination. Luis Rabel Nunez and his brother, Captain Jose Ricardo Rabel Nunez of the Cuban military, were childhood friends and neighbors of Fidel Castro. Captain Jose Rabel was well-positioned in the Cuban military before he defected and was used by the CIA to identify other disenchanted military officers who could be used in a coup in Cuba if such a contingency plan developed. It's not clear how Lewis's laundry truck was used by the church for the Cuban refugees, but Lewis was succeeded as head of the New Orleans Cuban Revolutionary Council by Frank Bartz, who owned a Cuban railroad before it was confiscated by Castro, and then he ran a washeteria in New Orleans. A.J. Weberman wrote, quote, In a telephone interview, Lewis Rebel denied he met David Ferry or Guy Bannister, but said he knew... Sergio Aracha Smith. Regarding the burglary, well, I used to run a dry cleaners and I had a truck that I used to loan to about 40 or 50 exiles here. Aracha asked me to loan him the truck to move some furniture. Whether the truck was used to move anything other than furniture is beyond me. End quote. Well, one thing they used the truck for was to move the munitions from the home of Bunker to Ferry's apartment. Bannister's offices in New Orleans, and the Lake Pontchartrain training camp. According to a CIA memo, the Homa bunker was not used to store CIA supplies at all, though they do acknowledge using the Schlumberger Company, whose board of directors today, and this was several years ago, includes former CIA head John Deutsch and a former 9-11 commissioner James Gorlick. The same CIA memo that denies the home of Bunker was used to store CIA supplies also acknowledges that the CIA did operate an anti-Castro Cuban training camp in Louisiana that included a munitions supply cache, which was connected to CIA spymaster David Atlee Phillips. There was some confusion as to whether it was a burglary at all as Garrison contended in persuading the grand jury to subpoena and indict Sergio Aracha-Smith and Gordon Novell, both of whom fled the state rather than testify. Some of the participants claimed that they were given a key to the bunker by a CIA contact, while others testified 
the burglary tools were used to break into the bunker, which was supposed to be used for securing munitions and blasting caps uh, used in drilling oil wells. The cases the arms were stored in were said to be labeled either Schlumberger or Interarmco, which was the company owned by Sam Cummings, the Philadelphia arms merchant who supplied the guns for many a revolution in South and Central America. On the return trip back to Ferry's apartment, some of the participants fell asleep, but were awakened by the explosion of some dynamite that was apparently thrown from the truck by Jerome Andrew Blackman, the ex-Marine who liked to play with guns. The most serious connection to the assassination of President Kennedy is Jean de Menil, the owner of Schlumberger, or as I said, the president and chairman of the board, who lived in Houston and was known for his art collection and was part of the network of white Russians who befriended Oswald when he returned from the Soviet Union. While the Catholic Relief Services in Dallas also assisted the Cuban refugees, it was the Russian Orthodox Church outside Russia that was the center of the social and religious life of the white Russian community. Both the Catholic Cuban Refugee Society and the white Russian Church were financially supported by the CIA through the Catherwood Fund of Philadelphia. So, that's the summation by Mr. Kelly, and it's a great place to start. But where do we go from here? Well, let's go a little deeper in the story. William Turner, in the January 1968 issue of Ramparts Magazine, had this to say about it. And I'll read that to you as well. So here we go. A copyrighted story in the New Orleans State's item, April 25th, 1967 edition, further illuminates the Camp Street scene. The newspaper, which at the time had an investigative team working parallel to the garrison probe, reported that a reliable source close to Bannister said he had seen 50 to 100 boxes marked Schlumberger in Bannister's office early in 1961, before the Bay of Pigs. The boxes contained rifle grenades, landmines, and unique little missiles. Bannister explained that the stuff would just be there overnight. A bunch of fellows connected with a Cuban deal asked to leave it there overnight. It was all right, assured Bannister. I have approval from somebody. The somebody, one can surmise from the Gordon Novell episode, which follows, was the CIA. Novell was wanted by the district attorney's office as a material witness in the 1961 burglary of the Schlumberger Well Company, munitions dump near New Orleans. Subpoenaed by the grand jury last March, Novell fled to McLean, Virginia, next door to the CIA complex at Langley, and took a lie detector test administered by a former Army intelligence officer, which he boasted to the press, and which he said proved Garrison's probe was a fraud. He then skipped first to Montreal and then to Columbus, Ohio, from where Governor James Rhodes, in one of the most absurd stipulations ever attached to a normally routine procedure, refuses to extradite him unless Garrison agrees not to question him on the assassination. From his Ohio sanctuary, the fugitive cryptically asserted that the munitions caper was one of the, and I quote, the most patriotic burglaries in history. When an enterprising reporter took him to a marathon party, Novell's indiscreet tongue 
loosen further. According to the state's item article, Novell's oft-repeated account was that the munitions bunker was a CIA staging point for war material, destined for use in the impending Bay of Pigs invasion. He is quoted as saying that on the day the munitions were picked up, he was, and I quote, called by his CIA contact and told to join a group which was ordered to transport munitions from the bunker to New Orleans. The key to the bunker was provided by his CIA contact. Novell reportedly said that others in the CIA group at the bunker were David Ferry, Sergio Aracha-Smith, the New Orleans delegate to the Cuban Democratic Revolutionary Front, and several Cubans. The munitions, according to his account, were dropped in Novell's office, Ferry's home, in Bannister's office-storeroom. Well, the story obviously gets deeper. But still, there's more. Arthur Russ Russo had his own account of it, and here is an excerpt from his book, Live by the Sword. According to the CIA's own documents and its own admissions, one of the firms that cooperated with the CIA in its preparations to wage secret war against Castro's recently declared Marxist government was the Schlumberger Wells Service Company. In fact, a 1967 CIA memo released in 1992 confirms that its domestic contact services, the DCS, and I quote, has discreet and continuing contact with the main Schlumberger office in Houston and branch offices in Minneapolis and elsewhere. Located in the little town of Homa, deep in the Mississippi River Delta and 50 miles southwest of New Orleans, Schlumberger served as a small arms depot for the CIA. It permitted a bunker leased for storing blasting supplies to be used as a cache for ammunition, bomb casings, and other military items some of which were shipped abroad, presumably to CIA staging areas in Guatemala or areas elsewhere within striking distance of Cuba. The arms were shipped in crates bearing the markings Schlumberger and machinery. Well, that's slightly different than what we just heard. Other weapons were earmarked for rebels in the French West Indies, but were never shipped. Some of the weaponry was to have been used in the Bay of Pigs invasion. The government's fumbling of the invasion upset the firm, which subsequently decided to terminate its contract with the CIA. According to Guy Bannister's attorney, Guy Johnson, Bannister learned that some of the munitions remained at the Homa Depot after the invasion. He thought that they should be put to use in the post-Bay of Pigs anti-Castro effort. Even the straight-laced FBI man, Bannister, wanted to finesse the issue legally. Bannister went to Washington and saw a high official in the Justice Department, says Johnson. Presumably, it was RFK. At this time, FBI agent Regis Kennedy, who had no blood relationship to the Kennedys in Washington, made one of his regular appearances in Bannister's office. According to Bannister, Associate Jack Martin, and I quote, it was about this time that he received letters of Mark and keys showed up. A letter mark is a legal device generated by a high federal authority that hasn't been employed since the time of Thomas Jefferson. Its purpose is to give legal license to someone who is about to commit 
a quasi-legal action. More importantly, it prevents prosecution should the person be apprehended by local authorities. Jack Martin recalled some of the wording of the alleged letter, and I quote, You are hereby directed to seize munitions or arms, the property of a foreign government, that are illegally located within the United States, using any and all means to do so. The letter mark was on Justice Department stationery, signed by Robert Kennedy. It was allegedly observed by Jack Martin, Gordon Novell, uh, who says he was involved in the home of transfer, Guy Johnson, and Bannister friend Kent Courtney. Bannister and the local anti-Castro activists were thus given the go-ahead to, and I quote, liberate the weaponry. When the weapons transfer was carried out that summer, it became clear that the CIA and the FBI were heavily involved. The transfer didn't happen overnight. In fact, military supplies were confiscated over a period of three months. In preparation for the transfer, says Jack Martin, Guy Bannister telephoned Emmy Loy, who was manager of the Schlumberger Wells Services Company. The point of the call was to make sure that the FBI or CIA would supply keys to the bunker where the weapons were stored. On another earlier trip, the work party came armed with a pair of wire cutters in place of the promised keys, which had not been delivered. It was a CIA operation, says Aracha's attorney, Frank Hernandez. It was set up so that Schlumberger could report it, that is the weapons transfer, as a robbery and be reimbursed by their insurance company. They went in at midnight and the material was waiting for them on a loading dock. We later verified that the CIA indeed reimbursed the insurance company. Leighton Martins, participating in the transfer, remembers one of the trips to the bunker. For this excursion, keys to the depot were in hand and the munitions were delivered to the office of Guy Bannister and Associates. It seemed like there was a whole caravan there, led by David Ferry, says Martins. The young participant, and I quote, didn't know what the hell was going on, except for having heard that the transfers were conducted by order of David Ferry, who participated in and by inference under orders of Sergio Aracha Smith. Aracha Smith's attorney, Frank Hernandez, has long believed that Aracha participated personally in the weapons transfer, but Aracha denies this. Martins supports Aracha's denial, saying, I don't remember Sergio there. However, Aracha did tell Ronnie Kerr that on one occasion, Aracha drove a truckload of, quote, plastic explosives from Houma, Louisiana, to New Orleans because no one else wanted to drive the truck. Aracha's good friend, Carlos Caroga also stated that he participated in the transfer with Bannister, Ferry, Aracha, and a U.S. Marine named Andrew Blackman. He put the explosives in a U-Haul trailer to be sent to Miami, Caroga says, but it stayed in New Orleans for a long time. One of the accomplices in the transfer, unwitting, he insists, was Luis Rebel Nunez, who replaced Sergio Aracha Smith as a New Orleans head of the CRC in 1962. Rebel supplied a laundry truck with which the weapons were transported, but he, like De La Barre, didn't quite know what was up. 
And I quote, I had a laundry truck I used to loan out to help resettle Cuban refugees. Just for humanitarian reasons, Rebel recalled recently. The Catholic Church asked us to help out. We also helped the refugees find jobs. In that effort, we had the backing of both mayors, Mayor Morrison and Mayor Shiro, and also Dr. Oshner, and also FBI agent Warren DeBreeze. It wasn't until years later that I learned that they had sometimes used the truck to transfer weapons. Rebel gave a bit more information in his congressional testimony, and I quote, As far as I know, they took them, that is the crates of munitions, to Lake Pontchartrain. It will be seen that Lake Pontchartrain played host to exiled training camps, which operated in concert with a White House-backed anti-Castro invasion force that was training in Central America. All right, well, we're inching in a little bit deeper, a little bit further in each one of these episodes. Now we're going to listen to Frank Bartz, who, as we just heard, was an influential Cuban that fled the country after Castro took over. Like so many of these upper-class and wealthy Cubans, he had his own colorful story. Francisco Antonio Bartz Clarence was the delegate of the Cuban Revolutionary Council in New Orleans from November 1962 to 1964. Bartz had been the president of a private railroad, as you heard earlier, in pre-Castro Cuba. His firm, which employed thousands of workers and had assets of more than $100 million, was nationalized by Castro in 1960. When he came to the United States, he operated a New Orleans Washateria from 1961 to 1963. One does not have to be that creative to surmise that Bartz and others like him were victims of what Castro had done, and Castro had completely destroyed their way of life. Bartz became an FBI informant reporting to Special Agent Warren DeBreeze in New Orleans. As a reminder, remember DeBreeze's connection to Oswald from earlier episodes. Bartz points out Gordon Novell's involvement in the Homa case is documented in an FBI memo. Keep in mind that Gordon Novell was one of the highest-profile CIA plants in Garrison's office, at first posing to be a friend of the investigation. He went to work for Garrison, and Garrison, indicative of so many other relationships in which he invested and trusted, would eventually find out the truth related to Novell, and then pursue him after it became clear that Novell was still working against Garrison on behalf of the CIA. The story in this form of the narrative about Novell goes like this. In September 1961, Gordon Novell took part in the burglary of a Schlumberger well munitions bunker. He informed the FBI. Schlumberger Well Services had an arrangement with the CIA, wherein at least a bunker in which ammunition, bomb casings, and other material would be stored for the CIA. Eventually, the material would be shipped out of the United States in Schlumberger boxes marked machinery. The explosives would then be shipped by boat to Cuba, where they were going to be used in a diversionary operation during the Bay of Pigs invasion. The CIA verified Gordon Novell's statement, and I quote, Novell has claimed in the press that the munitions from the bunker were to be used for a diversionary operation during the Bay of Pigs invasion. Agency officers familiar with the operation at the 
and there's a deleted part, have indicated that such a diversionary operation was based at, and that part's deleted, but that the operation was canceled before a landing was made. Gordon Novell continued, After the Bay of Pigs, Schlumberger became upset and wanted out of its CIA contract. Three months after the invasion, arrangements were made for the material stored in the bunker to be removed by Novell and his group. At the time the material was removed, an individual involved took some of Schlumberger's low-grade powder and fuses and other material, and the incident was reported as a burglary. And it also goes on to say that Gordon Novell had a previous history of assembling bombs. Okay, that was interesting too, but perhaps let's give the final say to Jim Garrison and how he summed up the Homa situation in his 1967 interview with Playboy. So here we go. Playboy asks him, On March 23, 1967, you ordered the arrest of Gordon Novell as a material witness in the conspiracy to assassinate President Kennedy, and you have subsequently sought his extradition from Ohio. What role do you believe Novell played in the alleged conspiracy? Here was Garrison's answer. I can't go into all aspects of Novell's activities because we have a live case against him. Novell worked closely with David Ferry and the anti-Castro Cuban exiles. In 1961, he raided a munitions bunker at Homa, Louisiana with David Ferry and a prominent anti-Castro exile leader, and the weapons seized were subsequently shipped by CIA agents to the counter-revolutionary underground in Cuba. He also worked for the Evergreen Advertising Agency in New Orleans, a CIA front that alerted anti-Castro agents to the date of the Bay of Pigs invasion by placing coded messages in radio commercials for Christmas trees. Novell himself was a paid employee of the CIA. As I mentioned earlier, Novell's own lawyer, Stephen Plotkin, has admitted that his client is a CIA agent. On May 23, 1967, Plotkin was quoted in the New Orleans State's item as saying, and I quote, his client served as an intermediary between the CIA and anti-Castro Cubans in New Orleans and Miami prior to the April 1961 Bay of Pigs invasion. And Garrison goes on to say, And the same day, the Associated Press, which has hardly served as my press agent in this case, reported when Novell first fled from New Orleans, he headed straight to McLean, Virginia, which is the Central Intelligence Agency suburb. This is not surprising because Gordon Novell was a CIA employee in the early 60s. There is no doubt that Gordon Novell was a CIA operative. Well, there you have it. Another incredible story where fact is more interesting than fiction. And just as I explained in the prologue, it seems fitting that in poring over Garrison's answer to the question posed by Playboy as to what evidence Garrison had that Novell participated in the assassination conspiracy, all he could say was that he worked for the CIA and that there was an ongoing investigation. So I guess you'll just have to wait till we do a dedicated episode on Gordon Novell. There were only a few individuals that Garrison was able to really get at and take sworn testimony from who were involved in the raid. 
And for Garrison, the story of the ray was like picking off a scab. It was something even worse underneath. Some notables, such as Sergio Aracha-Smith and Gordon Novell, as we've indicated, were shielded from extradition by governors in the states that they fled to. But one person who was not able to escape the Orleans Parish Grand Jury was Rancière Blaise Ellinger. And so up next, <laughs> you guessed it, in the next episode is his grand jury testimony under oath. Thank you for listening to episode 180 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. <laughs>